Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, as we come to your word, it is our desire that you would speak to us. Lord, we know that um, we know that you are a God who loves to communicate. You speak your truth uh, through the prophets. Um, above all, you speak to us in Jesus Christ. You apply your word by your Holy Spirit. And you have given us your word uh, accurately and reliably in the scriptures. And we ask now that you will um, teach us we ask that by your spirit, you would uh, not only teach our mind, we ask for that, but we ask that you will work deeply in our hearts, that you will change what it is that we desire, so that we desire what it is you want to give, that we would trust your word, that we would trust you above all, that you would draw us into a deeper intimacy with you. We're asking for miracles when we ask these things and we ask for them boldly because none of these things can we accomplish, but all of these things we need desperately. So do whatever it takes to work within us that we may know you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Um, please, will you turn back to uh, page, I think it was page eight, um, the second reading, uh, the reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. This is a super famous story. Um, if you've uh, been in church for a little while, you know that uh, Jesus um, feeds the 5,000 with just a few pieces of bread and fish, and it's a super famous story. Um, and it's, it's a super famous story for all kinds of reasons. Um, one reason is just that it is uh, just a remarkable miracle, right? I mean, who can take five loaves of fish and two, or five loaves of fish, what? Five loaves of bread, two fish, uh, and feed 
5,000 people, more than 5,000 people, no one but Jesus. It's a remarkable story. But one of the things that's interesting is that the gospel writers thought it was a really important story as well. Um, all of the four gospels that we have recorded in the New Testament, the uh, four accounts of Jesus's life, all of them tell this story. In two of the gospels, the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark, um, it, 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 they actually tell us that Jesus did almost the same miracle on two separate occasions. So clearly, the uh, gospel writers, these um, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are telling the story of Jesus' life, all of them agree that this is a really important miracle. Now, why do you think they think this is an important miracle? Um, like I said, it, it, it might just be that, that well, it's an amazing miracle, right? It's, it's so remarkable that it, it, it demands being recorded. Um, and surely that's part of it. But, but I want you to see today that it's not only a remarkable bonkers miracle, um, it's also a clever miracle. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Um, think about a really great story, like your favorite novel, your favorite play, your favorite story, okay? Um, you, you know how in a really, really good story, when you get to the end of the story, you get to the end, you get to the conclusion, and in a really good story, the ending, in one way, usually it's totally unexpected. I didn't see that coming. Like, if you get to the end of a, of a story and you're like, oh, I saw that coming, like, a quarter of the way through the story, that's disappointing. But if you get to the end of, the, of a story and you're like, wow, there was a twist. I didn't see it coming just that way. That's fantastic. But usually a really good story has an aspect that is unexpected, but also buried within the unexpected aspect of the ending, there's something that was previously anticipated. It's as if this uh, conclusion gathers up a whole bunch of themes that were planted earlier in the story, but then gathers them up in an unexpected way with a twist that's a really satisfying ending. Now, that's sort of what this miracle does. And it's part of why this miracle is so important. This miracle, on the one hand, is totally bonkers and unexpected. 5,000 people fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. Totally unexpected. But it's, it's also brilliant because it's sort of a perfect conclusion to a huge theme in the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. This miracle, feeding 5,000 people, reaches back into the Old Testament, reaches back into the Hebrew scriptures and gathers up a whole bunch of themes from the Old Testament and then shuffles them around and rearranges them in such a way that we end up realizing that Jesus is the unexpected but perfect conclusion to the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if that interests you, or not. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I could imagine somebody saying, wow, that's a lovely little documentary, but who cares? What is it, how does it relate to my life? Well, thank you. If that's your question, thank you for asking. Emmanuel, you always ask really good questions. Here's why it matters for you and me. This story tells us that Jesus is the perfect conclusion to the Old Testament, but it also tells us that Jesus is the unexpected but perfect conclusion to our lives. And here's why I say that. This story about feeding 5,000 people, it teaches us that Jesus Christ feeds his people with intimacy. 
It's an intimacy that satisfies us. It's an intimacy that goes down into our deepest desires and that cannot be satisfied without Christ. And it's an intimacy that we get to receive and it's an intimacy that we get to give away. And when you grasp all of that, you'll be able to see the deepest meaning of our lives and also the deepest mission for our lives. Let me show you how I get there. Okay, go to the story. When this scene opens up, Jesus is vulnerable and he's also processing profound grief. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says that when Jesus heard this, now stop there. What had Jesus just heard? Well, if you could see the paragraph beforehand, uh, Jesus had just heard that his cousin, a guy called John the Baptist, had been uh, decapitated by Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was the governor of northern Palestine and Syria. And this was just a huge deal. So John the Baptist had, appropriate for his name, he had baptized Jesus. You might remember that story. And Jesus and John, they were family. They were cousins and they were allies in the work, their ministries were allied together. And so when Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been murdered, had been killed by Herod Antipas, Jesus knows that there is every reason to expect that Jesus is on the same kind of trajectory towards execution and death. So clearly, it makes sense that when Jesus heard about John's death, he, withdraw, he withdraws from the crowd, he gets in a boat, he gets away, and he goes to a desolate place by himself. Almost certainly he went there to pray. He's vulnerable. Now pause there for a second. Um, Emmanuel, do you feel vulnerable right now? Uh, 2020 is a year of vulnerability, right? And we, all of us feel it, but we feel it differently, right? For some of us, um, this has been a year of grief. Uh, for some pain, for some loss, for some we're just fatigued. And, and for many of us, we're really, really scared about what happens next. Now, if you can identify with any of that, friends, I want you to look at Jesus. Because Jesus knows all about vulnerability. He's been there and he's been more vulnerable than anybody on this call can imagine. But one of the things that that means is it means you can trust him in the midst of your vulnerability. Now, that's just kind of a side note. That's for free. But go back to the story. So here's Jesus. He's processing pain. He processes it, very importantly, in prayer. So in prayer, Jesus goes and his intimacy with his father is renewed. And then watch what happens. Verse 14, he comes back to the crowd and it says, when he went ashore, he saw the crowd and he had, keyword, compassion upon the crowd and he healed their sick. Now focus there for a second. Focus on the word compassion. Now compassion in the original, it's a really strong word. It means that Jesus's guts seized up with inside him. When he looked at the crowd, he saw their vulnerability. He saw their need and their sickness and their hunger. He saw the issues that were weighing down their hearts and his guts sort of seized up within him. But when the Bible uses the word compassion, it doesn't just mean that Jesus had this emotional response and he got a little tear. 
when Jesus has compassion, it always leads to action. Jesus always does something about his compassion. And so in this moment, Jesus sees the crowd, his guts seize up with compassion, and he resolves to meet the people's needs with his power. And he does three things. He heals, he teaches, we know that from another gospel, but then thirdly, he feeds them. Now, focus now on this third thing, this feeding, this miraculous feeding. It's the end of the day. Uh, it's been a great day. Uh, the disciples tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, listen, it's, it's time to, they need to go home because they need to go and eat dinner. And so do we, Jesus, right? Jesus had healed. He had taught. That's plenty for one day. Jesus had no obligation to provide the people dinner. However, Jesus insists on feeding them. It's as if his day is not over until he feeds those people. Why? Why does he insist on it? He's not under obligation to do this. Why? Nobody's expecting it. Why does he insist on it? And in particular, why does Jesus's compassion, his guts seizing up at their need, why does that drive him to feed these people? What's so important about Jesus feeding the crowd? All right, well, to answer that question, we need to fill in the backstory. And the backstory takes us back to the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. Now, key story in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Old Testament is how Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and then God, through Moses, liberates them, brings them out of their slavery, out of Egypt, and God leads them into the desert, out of Egypt, into the desert. Now, here's the problem with the desert. There's no food. And Israel gets real vulnerable, real hungry, real quick. However, God doesn't leave them hanging. He immediately comes to their rescue and the Lord feeds Israel with manna. The Lord feeds Israel with miraculous bread and he does it every single day for 40 years. Now, here's the thing with manna. Each and every day, God would feed Israel with manna. Like a father feeds a child. And this food, this manna, it was like a little sign. It was a little taste of the intimacy that God wanted to have with his people. Now, Jim, wait, what? Intimacy? We're talking about bread and you just switched to intimacy. What are you talking about? Well, to explain this, we need, there's a backstory behind this backstory. I know, just stay with me. Leave Exodus and manna in the wilderness and go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, God creates the world. God creates humanity. And God gives humanity the Garden of Eden. You remember this. And do you know what God does in the Garden of Eden? Many things. One thing that God does is God cares for Adam and Eve. And of the many ways that God cares for Adam and Eve, he, one way is that he provides food for them. He says, any tree in this garden is yours for the taking. Eat and be satisfied. But here's the thing. When he allows them to eat of any of the tree, except for one, we'll get there in a second, it's not just about food. The garden is to be a place where God and humanity can eat together, but it's a sign of living in intimacy with each other. Now, I think we can identify with this. Um, let me ask you a question. 
don't you miss eating with your friends? Like all, all through COVID, we've, most of us haven't been able to eat with our friends. And don't you miss it? And what is it that you miss? Is it that you miss the food itself? Well, we can order in, right? What we miss is that we miss eating together because we miss the intimacy, the fellowship, the friendship that eating together facilitates and represents. Aren't I right? Well, in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was to be a place where God and humanity could enjoy intimacy with each other. And God, God's provision of food was a sign of that grace, of that friendship, of that fellowship, of that intimacy. But now here comes the problem. And you remember the problem, right? Because there is one tree that God said, that tree's my tree. Don't eat from that tree. Eat from all the other trees, but not from this one tree. Well, despite the fact that God had given Adam and Eve all the food that they could possibly need, Despite all of God's generosity, Adam and Eve decide they prefer to eat from the one tree that God hasn't given them. They eat from a tree without God's consent. And it breaks the intimacy between them. They prefer to eat the fruit and the food that God has not given them. But what underneath part of what that signifies is that in, a, in effect, they're spitting out the food of intimacy with God so that they can stuff their mouths with themselves, with their own autonomy. Put differently, they exchange God for something that God has made. They exchange intimacy with God for the ability to run their own ship, for their own independence, their own self-reliance, and their own autonomy. Now, independence, self-reliance, autonomy, these kind of sound like good things, right up until the point that you get them. Because when you're designed for intimacy with God and then you reject God, what you end up realizing pretty quickly is that independence from God actually just leaves you in lonely isolation. And self-reliance sounds good, the marketing's great, but it ultimately, when you're no longer relying upon the Lord, it leaves you with your own vulnerability and no resource. And when you reject God and prefer your own autonomy, you eventually it ends up that autonomy is just a lie. Autonomy from God is just a subtle form of enslavement. Okay. Now, in your mind, go from Genesis back to Exodus, from the garden back to manna in the desert. Remember, God liberates Israel, God feeds Israel. And it's a little bit like God is saying to Israel now in the desert, Israel, I want to give you a taste of the intimacy for which you were made, but you have never tasted and you have always rejected. It's as if God says every day, Israel, I want you to eat the bread that I provide. And as you eat this bread that I provide, you'll begin to learn that you are not meant to live by bread alone, but you are meant to live by every word that proceeds from my mouth, says the Lord. God actually says that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can go look it up. But part of what that means is this. It's as if God's saying real life is about living in daily, moment by moment, and breath by breath, dependence upon God, intimacy with God, through God's word and by God's spirit. However, once again, the problem the same problem that happens in the garden happens in the desert. Even in the desert, even with manna, despite all of God's kindness and compassion and generosity, 
Israel, so to speak, spits manna out of their mouths and they try to run back to Egypt. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this, but in our psalm reading, it says it's almost as if the more God, the more God, the more grace that God poured out on Israel, the more they rejected him. And in our Old Testament reading, um, this comes, the old, our Old Testament reading, the first reading comes from Nehemiah, which is a book that was written hundreds of years after the Exodus, but it's reflecting on the experience of manna in the wilderness and Israel in the desert. It says that despite all of God's miraculous compassion, in verse 17, it says that Israel appointed a leader to help them return to slavery in Egypt. Israel's just like Adam and Eve. Faced with the grace of God and his generosity and his invitation to intimacy, they spit it out of their mouths and they want to run to slavery. Now stop and consider the madness of that moment. God rescues them. God feeds them. God summons them to a renewing intimacy with himself. Nevertheless, there's something in Israel. There's something in Israel that makes them reflexively distrust God and trust themselves. And they even rationalize running away from freedom and back into enslavement. It's madness. And it's what the Bible calls sin. And the madness of sin is something that infects every human heart. And you gotta look in your own heart and find it there. Um, Emmanuel, um, we need to remember that we are not immune from sin. And it's not, I, I'm not just saying that, hey, none of us is perfect, okay? My guess is that we'd all agree on that. What I'm saying is that inside us, there is a proclivity, there's a drive, there's almost a power that makes us want to distrust God, trust ourselves, rely on our own resources, be pragmatic, take the, uh, the path of least resistance, um, uh, receive the bits of the Bible that we immediately like and reject the bits of the Bible that we don't and, and have all kinds of rationality for why we can do this. But friends, what I consider that that is just old fashioned madness of sin. We were made to know God. And anything less than knowing God is called enslavement. Now, keep all that in your mind and let's come back to Jesus. Why does Jesus want to feed the people so much? Imagine you're in the crowd. You, you, you're sitting there. And it's been an amazing day. You've heard Jesus teach. You saw him heal. In fact, imagine that the person next to you is your friend from your hometown and he's been blind for years and, and now he's seeing. And he's seeing everything. And he's describing color for the first time ever. And it's been, everybody's pumped with adrenaline. But it's the end of the day and everybody's hungry too. And Jesus tells everybody to sit down in groups. And all of a sudden you think, uh-oh, apparently the day's not done. I thought it was done, but, we, but wait, there's more. And the disciples start handing out food and it's bread and fish. But all of a sudden you notice that there's quite a lot of bread and fish coming out. And then you look over at Jesus and you, you've, you've got a line of sight to Jesus and you realize that there's more food coming out of his basket than can fit in that basket. And then the more you watch, you realize that nobody's refilling that basket. 
And in that moment, your heart starts to pound because you remember the manna. You grew up with the story of the Exodus and manna in the desert. And then your heart starts to pound faster. Why? Because all your life in synagogue, you've been told that when the Messiah shows up, he's going to feed people with manna again. And then Peter comes over and gives you your bit of bread and fish. And you start eating and it tastes great. But you realize you're satisfied, not just because of the food, good as that is. You're satisfied in your soul. Because as you eat, your eyes just keep on going back to Jesus. And you realize in that moment that Jesus is the unexpected but perfect conclusion to the Old Testament. You realize that he is the Messiah who's going to restore God's kingdom. And you realize in that moment that you are eating the manna renewed. But then it's not just that. You also realize that Jesus, whom you're still looking at, is the unexpected but perfect conclusion to your own life and your deepest desires. Why? Because as you take each bite, you remember in a greater clarity than you did before and with a more broken heart than you had before, you remember all the times that you've spat out God's grace over the course of your life. You remember all the times that you embraced the madness of sin and called it rational. And you consider all the, all the ways in which you don't deserve this bread that you're eating and you're swallowing and you're enjoying. You don't deserve it any more than Adam and Eve did. You don't deserve it any more than ancient Israel did. But nevertheless, you keep on eating because your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And you realize that though you don't deserve any of this, Jesus' compassion is summoning you. Summoning you by name to an intimacy that you are made for but that you can never achieve and that you have always rejected. And then the disciples start cleaning up and you help. And as you start helping the disciples clean up, all of a sudden you notice that it's 12 baskets of crumbs left over. And you smile because you know that all of your suspicions are confirmed. 12 baskets of leftovers for the 12 tribes of ancient Israel. And you realize again, you look at Jesus and you know that Jesus is ensuring that all God's promises from the Hebrew scriptures are being fulfilled. All the promises from the Old Testament are being fulfilled. And therefore, all of God's word is trustworthy. And you've always wondered, can you really trust it? But looking at Jesus, you realize that you can. And then you realize with a new clarity the madness of sin and the beauty of real intimacy with God. Now, Emmanuel, can you see that Jesus is the unexpected but perfect conclusion and fulfillment of not only the Old Testament, but can you see that he's the perfect fulfillment of your deepest desires? You were made for intimacy with God. We're enslaved, however, by the madness of sin that is always whispering in your ears that you don't need intimacy with God or that it's not real. Friends, Jesus saw us in the madness of sin. And just like on this day, Jesus looked at us, every one of us, and his guts seized up with compassion. And it's not just an emotion for Jesus. It always leads to action. And it led him to the cross. But pause, friends. Jesus is not just some sort of tragic victim. He could have avoided the cross. He had all kinds of warning. He had warning when John the Baptist was beheaded. He could have run. He could have run away from the cross, but he didn't. He ran toward the cross. 
He ran toward the cross for the same reason that he was so motivated to feed the 5,000. He ran to the cross to purchase intimacy between God and people who had rejected God. And that's why Jesus volunteered for the cross. He didn't have to do it, but Jesus ran to the cross to defeat the madness of sin, to uh, liberate us from the enslavement to sin, to give us forgiveness and amnesty and also sanity in intimacy with God as our father. Friends, it took the folly of the cross to defeat the madness of sin. And that's why Jesus today can feed us with intimacy. And it's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. And it's also the best gift that we ever get to share with other people. Do you, do you notice in verse 19, um, the disciples receive bread from Jesus and then they give bread to others. And that's an important pattern. Remember how Jesus at the beginning, he receives, he's renewed in intimacy with his father in prayer. And out of that, he goes and he has compassion on the people and feeds them. The disciples follow the same pattern. They receive the bread, they give the bread. We are to receive intimacy with our Father through Christ and then share that intimacy with others. The purpose of our life is to know God, to receive the bread of intimacy with God. But then the mission of our lives is to share that intimacy with others. So let me ask you, do you know God? Are you receiving the bread of intimacy with Jesus or are you in subtle ways spitting it out? And I'm not just asking if you're religious. You might have grown up in church. Hooray! But are you eating the bread of real intimacy with Jesus? You may have not even identified as a churchgoer at all. But Jesus is saying, will you receive the bread of real intimacy with God? Say yes to Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. You must respond by surrendering your life wholly to him without reservation. And you will receive what you've never earned. Intimacy with God as your father. And, the, and if you do know him, then Jesus is calling you to a deeper intimacy and an intimacy that wants to be shared. And that's true even in times of vulnerability. One of the great gifts of this present year, despite all its bonkers crazy, is that we all of us know that we're vulnerable. And when you know that you're vulnerable, that's the best time to get to know Jesus well. Jesus loves feeding people, especially hungry people. So be hungry for Jesus Christ and be eager to share him. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.